from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Welcome to the latest edition of the Centre for European Reforms podcast. Uh, today, uh, I, uh, John Springford, Deputy Director of the CR, I'm joined by Christian Odendahl, the Chief Economist, um, and we're going to talk a bit about two things. The first thing is um, the recovery fund proposal uh, which uh, Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron came out with on Monday. Um, and then we're going to talk a bit about our new piece of research, which looks at how COVID-19 is going to drive economic divergence uh, within the European Union. Um, and I should introduce by saying that, that uh, we, we started, started writing this piece about four or five weeks ago um, with a view to thinking, okay, one, how bad is COVID-19 going to be um, in terms of divergence within the EU? And two, if it's going to be bad, um, that we should write something that's going to prompt a recovery fund which is meaningful, that, that involves meaningful transfers and doesn't rely upon the usual financial chicanery um, that uh, we have come to expect so far. Um, and we were just about to publish... Uh, and then Macron and Merkel came out of their, came out with their proposal, um, which has necessitated a bit of a rewrite. Um, obviously, both of us think that the proposal has uh, quite a lot of potential um, and is something which our research for the last few weeks certainly suggests is needed. Um, but we thought we'd just start with the proposal first. And, and Christian, uh, I think you're going to take us through what the proposal is, uh, one, and two, what are the dividing lines that one can imagine being drawn during the negotiation that's going to come after this proposal which Macron and Merkel have made? Yeah, so the proposal, I think, is a, is a, is a very significant uh, step. So this is, this is one of the things that, that, that I get asked as a German is, is that now the moment that Germany changes course? And um, I guess two taboos are broken with this proposal. The first is Germany didn't want common debt issuance. And now we get common debt issuance via the EU. And the second is Germany didn't want a transfer union. And now we are sort of getting sizable transfers. So, so you could argue, well, this is, this is quite a significant step. Um, but um, I think this is um, a bit over the top because Germany didn't fully... Um, scrap these taboos. This is still time limited, and um, the common debt issuance is, is is also limited. So that's why this will be a temporary thing. But you know, a temporary thing is still important when it's that of that magnitude and and so relatively timely. So it will be a 500 billion fund, uh, funded via debt through the EU budget, and um, the funds are then distributed as grants to uh, regions and sectors that are hit badly by the economic fallout of this crisis. And the emphasis will probably be on investment, especially in the digital and green transition. 
Um, so this is a significant proposal, but of course there are you know opposing views. So from Austria, the Netherlands and so forth, who would rather see this as a loan-based program. But we already have a separate loan-based program. So I don't think that that, um, that that opposition will be will be serious. I think at the end of the day, they will probably cave and agree. The starting point for our question was how how differentiated is the hit, the economic hit really, right? And, and one of the questions that first came to mind was how bad is the hit of the coronavirus in, in, in health terms? Is there a significant difference? Why is there a significant difference? And of course, what does that imply for the, for the, economic, of the, for the economic fallout? So you, you've looked at the, you've looked at, the um, at the infection rates and how fast they decline and what that means for the length of the lockdown. So maybe you can walk us quickly through that. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, one of the assumptions that a lot of people made when it became clear that this was going to be a pandemic was that, um, you know, all of the European countries were going to be hit pretty equally hard by it. That was kind of, I remember in the very beginning, um, a lot of people were saying, oh, well, this is going to be a symmetric shock um, to the economy. And um, it's pretty clear that it just hasn't worked out that way at all. Um, so as we know, um, the really big outbreaks have been in uh, Italy, Spain, uh, France, Belgium, um, and the UK, and, and, and Sweden um, to a certain extent. Um, and the consequence of that, or the reason for that, was um, certainly in the case of Spain and Italy, that they were hit, hit first. Um, and while they could have locked down earlier, I guess, um, the fact that they were kind of the test bed for the European response to COVID and they were hit first meant that other countries could look at what was happening there and close down more quickly before the, you know, the brutal exponential logic of COVID really took hold. And, you know, so even, even closing... Though, even the... though that is a, in a sort of an asymmetric hit in a way, it, it could be a symmetric hit because it is sort of an external virus. It turns out to be an asymmetric hit because some countries are, were hit first. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, if you're Germany, then you manage to lock down, say, just a week or two weeks and before things really got out of hand in the same way uh, that they had in Italy or Spain. Um, and, and the crucial point that I think people haven't quite thought through um, in the debate is that if you manage to lock down early and um, keep the overall number of infections within your society low, um, then your route out of lockdown is going to be a lot shorter than those who have had really big outbreaks um, and uh, in the piece we, we kind of just have a bit of a think about how long that might be um, and according to our according to our calculations um, then it could well be you know up to a month to six weeks longer um, for some of the countries with the biggest outbreaks before they manage to get really suppress the virus down to a level um, uh, which means that they can really properly ease lockdown measures. Although you know we are seeing. So what, what, what is the what is the level that we think is is um, is manageable? So the level that we look at in the paper um, is the level that South Korea has managed, and South Korea famously has um, been extremely successful at. Uh, managing the virus without a total lockdown, um, they've used a contact tracing system uh, where they where they uh, 
identify all of those who uh, are likely to have the virus, test them, isolate them, find all of their contacts, test them and isolate them as well. Um, and that means that it's possible to just quarantine those people who have the virus um, uh, while le letting other people go about their daily business. Um, but in order to do that, you have to have the infection rate at a very low level. You have to have the number of infections at a very low level. Um, and so we looked at uh, how long it would take for France, Spain and Italy to reach the South Korean level of infections per capita uh, based upon what the rate of decline since the peak has been. Um, and for uh, for the countries with the big outbreaks, we're looking at the you know the the uh, certainly the end of June and and um, maybe into mid July. And 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 so we so we know that the uh, that the outbreak where it's, where it started early and where it was big that this has a bigger impact also on the on the economics because the lockdown lasts longer and we know that a month of lockdown costs two to three percent annual GDP. So that will be a, a severe hit. Uh, but then what about a sub-regional level in Europe? So um, if, we do, if we step back from the country level and go to the, to the more granular regional level, what, what can we say about that? On the, on the regional level, we looked at um, some work which the IFO Institute had done in Munich, uh, just making some educated guesses, some assumptions really about um, how uh, lockdowns are going to affect different sectors of the economy. Um, and we took their, their assumptions um, and then we applied them at a regional level uh, to different European regions. And obviously European regions have some quite different economic structures. So a, uh, a region in southern Italy, for example, is likely to have an awful lot of tourism as part of its GDP, whereas, say, Lombardy has an awful lot of manufacturing, huge amount of manufacturing as a share of GDP. Um, and by applying these estimates to the regions, we could work out which regions are going to be hit hardest by lockdowns and where are they. Um, and the, the regions that get hit hardest are those that have got the the largest manufacturing and tourism sectors. Um, and the countries that uh, have the, the most amount of tourist revenue and tourist jobs are in Southern Europe. Um, and they also have a lot of manufacturing uh, regions as well, or regions which are particularly dependent on, on manufacturing too. Um, so you find that a disproportionate number of these regions which are hardest hit are in Southern Europe. Um, so those two things together, length of lockdown and the structure of the economy means that um, uh, COVID itself is going to be quite a big asymmetric shock, I think. Um, and the, the other thing that, you know, we thought about and, you know, Christian is a, a specialist on um, macroeconomic policy in Europe, is that some countries are clearly better able to, to use the government's balance sheet to, you know, to to, to borrow money, to be able to distribute it to businesses, to keep employees on furlough. Um, and also when the recovery is, uh, is underway, once the pandemic is um, under control, to be able to stimulate the economy back up to um, uh, something approaching its usual level. Um, Christian, why don't, why don't you tell us about the research that you've done in that area? Yeah, so the, uh, one, of the, one of the important um... Uh, aspects of, of the eurozone in particular is to what extent um, eurozone countries with high debt levels and low growth rates 
are able to muster the same sort of support for their economy and, and later stimulus. Um, Germany stands out because Germany has, uh, has spent uh, quite a bit on, on, on support schemes to the extent that the European Commission um, is asking questions about whether that um, you know, infringes in, in on, on the state aid provisions of, of the EU. Um, but I've looked at sort of the economic stimulus um, uh, packages and, and, and there is a stimulus index from, the, uh, from Brown University uh, compiled on the basis of IMF data and sort of looked at whether there is a relationship between stimulus and sort of the fiscal position and debt level. And so far there is not. So it seems that at least for now, um, countries with high and low debt uh, seem to spend differently and not systemically differently. Um, but we do see that the stimulus does have an impact on how consumers see the world. So we looked at, uh, we looked at consumer sentiments uh, in relationship to economic stimulus. Um, and there is a clear relationship uh, between, between stimulus and, cons and consumer sentiment. So that the, more, the higher the stimulus is and, and the support package in the country, the more optimistic consumers are. And that shows us that it does matter to what extent countries can, um, to what extent countries can support their economy and also be able to support a future recovery. The second part is um, the high debt level, right? We know that some countries have very high debt levels already coming into this crisis. And so uh, there are questions of to what extent that is a problem going forward. I've looked at the, um, the likely increases in interest rates on these high debt countries. So we already saw that Italian spreads have increased. Um, and we know from the literature, from the economic research that's been done, that interest rates do tend to increase the higher the debt is because investors run a higher risk if the debt of the country is higher. And so with Japan being the, being the, um, being the exception. And, um, and so um, we, we've looked at, the, at, at that relationship and, and sort of made a simple calculation on how much more money countries will have to spend in the future on debt service, given that they all have to increase their debt to GDP ratio by 20%. That's just an assumption uh, to work with. But we're saying, okay, all countries increase by the same amount of debt relative to GDP. But there is a huge difference between how much Italy and Spain and, and Greece and so forth will have to pay in the future on their additional debt compared to Germany. So Italy and Spain will have to pay another half a percentage point of GDP in debt service in the future because of COVID. And Germany and Austria and the Netherlands and so forth have to pay nothing because they come with negative interest rates into this crisis to begin with. And so um, there's, a, there's a differential impact already, already there. There's lower potential growth in the South as well. So that makes it harder in the future to grow out of this debt um, and to reduce debt levels in, in that way. And then there are, of course, the fiscal rules, right? The fiscal rules in Europe, if we reapply them after this crisis, mean that countries with high debt levels need to bring their debt level down to 60% over time. And the higher the debt level is, the faster they need to bring that down. And so that means the Southern European uh, countries will have to run tighter fiscal policies sooner than the rest of Europe. So this is all ways in which sort of the initial fiscal and growth position 
affects economic divergence um, in, 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 in this crisis because countries will be differently affected through their high debt levels and low growth potential. Mm -hmm. So that, that kind of brings us back to um, the recovery funds, um, doesn't it? Because, you know, we were slightly cursing Merkel and Macron for coming out just as we were about to publish our paper. But um, it's <laughs> but it's a but it's a, um, a pretty big deal in in so far as you know, the um, 500 billion euros, which is around 3% of EU GDP, um, is actually transferred to these, you know, these countries, which I, we've identified as being really vulnerable, um, and who are going to be hit hardest by COVID and have the least ability to be able to cope with it. Um, and, I mean, Christian and I kind of differ slightly on the way that the funds should be structured, I guess. I'm not so sure about it necessarily being at the E level, but, but Christian, perhaps you should tell us why you think that that it, that it should be. Yeah, so there are two, there are two reasons, I guess. Uh, the first reason is um, this is about European solidarity. This is not about the euro as such. And if there are countries that are hit hardest, um, independent of whether they are members of the euro or not, then all European countries should do this together um, and not just the eurozone countries. Now it happens that most of the countries affected and those able to pay for the transfers are also members of the Eurozone. So it's really only about the Scandinavian countries um, that, are that are reasonably wealthy and would contribute as net payers to these transfers. But I think that's reasonable. Um, the second is a more procedural and legal argument. So setting up a Eurozone-only fund of that magnitude based on uh, existing legal provisions and procedures um, is legally very difficult if you want to restrict it to the Eurozone only because there are already legal provisions on which the EU can borrow money. We have all, we've had that before. There is a solidarity clause in Article 122 um, that says that the EU can, you know, should, should in an act of solidarity, um, 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 can, can, can help uh, other parts of the of the union and so designing a fund of that magnitude quickly based on existing legal procedures while making it eurozone only i think is very tricky um, if you wanted to make it eurozone only or eurozone focused that means you know taking east central and eastern europe out uh, more or less um, then there are ways to tweak the parameters in this to make sure that this is in fact what comes out of this Right? So that the Central and Eastern European countries do not pay for the transfers because they are reimbursed for the risk that the EU budget is taking. Um, and so that most of the money flows from northern, rich northwestern European countries to the, to the hardest hit. So for, for Sweden's point of view, you know, part of the reason why uh, this is going to be a difficult thing for Southern Europe to cope with is because it has high debt and that's not entirely independent of the single currency. Um, we know that Italy, uh, Italy's growth rate really declined as it entered the euro. Um, we know that uh, mismanagement at the eurozone level through the euro crisis um, ha has led to a, a very sizable increase in debt. I mean those debts would have risen anyway but um, you know, the fact that the European Central Bank was not acting as a lender of last resort, for example, um, meant that borrowing costs soared in 2012, and that added, added, added a lot of debt to some European countries. 
And so from Sweden's point of view, it's a bit like, well, you're asking us to put money into a fund where it's, you know, it's partly about the design flaws in the euro, at least, that means that we're in this position. So it should really be a eurozone only fund. And then on the Poland and Hungary side, you know, as Christian alluded to, these countries are still comparatively poor compared to Spain and Italy. Um, and so the idea that they would be net contributors to uh, to uh, those countries is always going to be a very difficult sell. Um, I think Christian's probably right that the the best way to do this would be to sort of parameterize the fund and say it's an EU together fund, but really actually most of the transfers are going to take place within the Eurozone. Um, but then there is just the issue too that uh, the Eurozone needs some sort of fiscal stabilization mechanism. Um, and um, I can understand why it's easier to sell it to German voters as a one-off um, uh, and, you know, it's the EU together and we're all coming together to deal with this one off. But it, it would be good to lay the ground for, um, you know, further shocks that come along that might cause some troubles in the Eurozone. Yeah, absolutely. I fully agree. So this this brings me sort of to conclude to the to the question of whether this is a Hamiltonian moment, as people like to call it, sort of um, referring to Alexander Hamilton in the US, um, that um, famously centralized fiscal spending at the federal level and thereby um, created um, the power and the fiscal space for the, for the central government in the US. And so um, I'm quite skeptical about this because one of the things that will be relatively clear is that this will be temporary. And those conservative forces who would usually disagree with a proposal like this will, ab will make absolutely sure that this is a temporary thing and that when the next multi-annual financial framework needs to be negotiated in 2027, we are not going to have sort of a 50% increase of this multi-annual financial framework because of this. Um, so that's why I don't want to call it a Hamiltonian uh, moment, I think, but I do would like to call it a Hamiltonian opportunity because we now are experiencing for the first time a sort of debt-funded fiscal capacity at the European level to deal with a big shock, uh, which it heads asymmetrically. And if we do a good job in managing that fund and making it count and making it successful, I think we are laying the political groundwork for the argument in 2027 to say, okay, this is something that we in Europe and particularly in the Eurozone absolutely need to make our economies more stable because we're all benefiting from this. Those that are paying into this fund benefit, of course, through a more stable economy. So that's why I think it is a Hamiltonian opportunity uh, for us to prove that this is, this is the way forward. And then it's important to make the case in 2027 or a bit earlier um, that there needs to be a central fiscal capacity. Okay, great. Um, well, uh, thanks, Christian. And um, uh, we're, record we're recording this just, just before our paper comes out tomorrow. Um, I've also written a, a short piece for the Financial Times uh, on our paper. So uh, if you don't want to read the whole thing, you can read that. Um, and uh, the CER podcast will be back in a couple of weeks. All right. Thanks, Christian. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CR underscore EU.